0: What's up, guys? Welcome to episode five of Believe in Queens. I'm Joe Seralo, joined as always by my man Tyler Ward here to bring you the latest updates, news, and developments on the Mets. We've got a ton to get to tonight on this Sunday evening. The Miami Marlins Mets series ended in a split. That just wrapped up with one of the best pitchers duels you'll see all year. The Mets are headed to Atlanta in a game that could, in a series rather, that could help decide. Who is going into first place, going into the All-Star break next week? We'll have updates on Jacob deGrom. We'll talk about the future of the Mets catcher position with James McCann now back on the IL, his second stint this year, due to to his oblique. And then, of course, the All-Star rosters were just announced. We'll dive into that, why Taiwan Walker is one of the biggest snubs in the National League and more. But Tyler, how are you doing today, my man?
1: I'm doing okay. You know, again, we're recording this. Usually the pod comes out the day after the series wraps up for the Mets. They split the series. I don't love it. It's not the worst thing in the world, but I definitely have some gripes to share while still some shedding some positivity going forward as well this Mets team, I know for all my viewers here that are watching YouTube on the channel Wardy NYM, thank you guys so much for being here. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe on, as always, and wherever you're getting your podcast, listening to this right now, make sure to listen in, chime in, make sure you rate, review, all that fun stuff, guys. Like I said, a deep dive is what we'll be doing in today's pod.
0: So much to discuss, and I just want to get right into it, Joe, so let's do just that. I want to get right into it too, Tyler, but first I do want to remind everyone that the episode's brought to you by our proud sponsors at BetOnline. Head over to BetOnline.ag for the latest odds, updates, and developments in sports. You can place all your baseball bets there. You can look ahead and find your NFL futures odds there. If you like fighting, boxing, UFC, you can take care of it there as well. Just head over to their website on your computer or on your phone and use the promo code Believe. That's B-L-E-A-V for your one-time 50% welcome bonus. And let the games begin. Tyler, let's let the show begin. All right. So we just ended
1: that Marlins series. And I want to know, what is your raw reaction? Before we deep dive these games and knowing about the split, what is just your raw reaction to this game? Because I just did my post-game live show. And while I wasn't ranting, I think I wasn't ranting just because of how exhausted I am with it being the same issue with this Mets team that we've seen time and time again when they're losing close games. So, Joe, pivoting it back to you, what's your raw reaction from this one?
0: Right, so I'll keep it real with you, man. Look, I've been, I think, one of the more optimistic, positive, level-headed Met fans this season. I don't like the knee-jerk reactions. I don't like losing a bad game and then up, oh, season's over, same old Mets. I actually walk away from this series, a split in a four-game set, pretty discouraged because when we previewed the series, it was Thursday night and Sunday. If we were going to split, I mean, we were fully prepared for a split. You have to be anytime you go into a four-game set. But the games that we expected, you know, the Mets could lose were Thursday and Sunday. Now, Sunday lived up to its billing, right? Today's game, Alcantara, Walker, both went seven scoreless. Both deserve to be all-stars. Alcantara obviously is. Walker was a snub. We'll get into that later on. But Thursday's game, I mean, the Mets came out picking up where they left off in the ninth and 10th in Cincinnati the night before. Bats a blazing. 10-0 win. Trevor Williams, seven scoreless. How you doing? And that set the tone. That was a game that the Mets should have lost. That set the tone for a series where you needed to win three out of four. And after that game, even though they ended up winning one other game in the final three of the series, the Mets could have just as easily, you can argue the Mets should have lost the final three games of the series. The Marlins outplayed the Mets for the final three games of this set. And that's really discouraging to me because the Mets essentially stole game one, a game where, you know, we've struggled against lefties. Castano pitched well against us his last outing. You know, you could have easily seen Castano pitching well against us again in the Marlins winning game one. We stole game one. We came out with a 10 spot in the first game of the series, and then the bats just reverted to where they were, you know, when Scherzer was pitching in Cincinnati. The bats just went anemic again, hitting with runners in scoring position, continues for the better part of the last now five, maybe even six weeks to be a real challenge for this team. And, you know, even though they had that magical win, obviously on Keith Hernandez, they was the first time. Since game six of the eighty-six World Series, where the Mets won in extras because of two errors. How about that for Wow. This? Yeah. With stars yeah. aligned. I did the, not. I mean know the that Mets path. put that one out and it's like, wow, first time ever since game six on Keith Hernandez Day. So that was incredible, right? But let's call it what it is. The Mets got outplayed. The Mets didn't deserve to win that game. You don't you don't deserve to win a game when you're only scoring because a team makes two errors in the same inning. So they got outplayed. And you know, if they play like this against Atlanta, they're gonna get swept. So they've got to they've got to do better. They've got to hit better. You know, Scherzer's going to go give it his all tomorrow night or tonight as you're listening to this. But Max Freed owns us, so you got to you got to switch something up. I, you know, I don't want to hear oh well we stink against lefties. Freed's one of the best lefties in the game. All right, well Max Scherzer's one of the best pitchers in the game. So score some damn runs for him. You didn't do it in Cincinnati. Do it in Atlanta now. Hold first place for the next week. And, and come on, like let's wake up. Let's get it going here. Joe coming out with some fire, and that's what I want to see because I 100% agree
1: with you. This is a Mets team going into this series. Look, you had eight runs that you miraculously get there that we see late against the Cincinnati Reds, right? Then you score a 10-piece on Castano, who let's not forget – Put up seven strong, only giving up two earned runs. Won the pitcher's duel between him and David Pearson, who won like seven strong in Miami a couple weeks ago. So I wasn't feeling too comfortable pitching matchup-wise in this game whatsoever. Trevor Williams, as we said, seven shutty. What an amazing aim for him and what very well could be his last start in this rotation for a bit now that we have Max back. That we have Bassett back, and Peterson, again, is in that rotation. Williams is on the outside looking in right now, so huge props to him on what he was able to do here in this game one. But you would naturally think after scoring 18 effing runs in a 24-hour span that at minimum you can come out and score more than two there in game two against a Pablo Lopez that you yourself beat up on in City Field over the past month ago. But no, the Mets were anemic. They weren't able to be consistent. And the biggest trend that you will see in this series, and again, from how we're talking, it probably sounds like the Mets lost this series at minimum three or four. But in reality, yes, they won. But it felt like they still lost, especially on how brutal this one was. Even with Saniel Contra being a beast, that's why I'm not ranting about the Mets not having offense him against him. But I am ranting about the fact that this is a Mets offense for over a month now, folks. Somehow, someway, they're second in baseball currently with Rogers' in scoring position with Bannan average I don't know how I genuinely do not know I guess that just shows you just how red hot this team was the first two two and a half months of the season but man oh man with the current ailments that they have that will be deep diving soon on Marte McCann McNeil gonna be away from the team as he's having a kid I mean it feels like every single time that the Mets may find themselves gaining some momentum there's was either just a roadblock to get in their way uh, based on inconsistencies with runners of scoring position, or just we're having ailments as well. It, it has not been fun in Mets land from a consistent basis, nearly to the same degree that we saw, even after giving them the benefit of the doubt of a brutal June with an above 500 record still when they had the worst schedule in all of baseball. We're early here in July, but when you have the second easiest schedule on paper this season and you're just above 500 through now 10 days here in July, that's not encouraging for me, especially as, again, you go into this Braves series when they are guns blazing right now and it all takes is for the Mets to continue to be a little bit anemic and they find themselves out of first in the division and it's going to be a seesaw that I expect all year round. But look, let's talk for a minute about game one which was surely the biggest positive of the series. It went 10-0, but what stood out the most to me, and again, it wasn't a consistent level because we didn't see that after game one. However, you saw Brandon Nemo won one for three with an RBI. That was awesome from him. Starting Marte, who had a big game, one of his big games, unfortunately, before suffering injury and the Keith Hernandez game when he was on the bench, no less, he wasn't even in the field or at the at bat or anything of that nature. Three for five, he was huge, but the big ones were James McCann prior to his injury as well, and having a massive home run in this one a three-run bomb to help secure the Mets lead but then JD Davis was the story of this game I mean this was his best game of his entire career three for four three runs scored five RBIs with his first grand salami how the hell are you doing JD finally (sighs) stepped up I don't know if it's because he heard the Nelson Cruz trade rumors that have been happening as of late that we're not even emphasizing in today's discussion because I just did a video on my channel but there's just so much rumors starting to come out now guys so it's a matter of Really, what can we nitpick? What is best to discuss here? But they're showing interest now that we saw in Nelson Cruz. They are and David Robertson, which I'm going to want to know your thoughts on a little bit later in the show because that would definitely surely help this bullpen. That definitely needs some reassurance right now. But the Mets, they come out, guns a-blazing. They win 10-0 in game one. That feels great, right? But then we get into game two, and you're matching up again. It gets a right-hander that, naturally, you would think that guys like Alonzo, guys like some others in this lineup would fare well against, but it was the complete opposite. Chris Bassett comes back off the COVID list, and he pitches an absolute gem. I mean, he goes 6. 6.1 strong, six hits, two earned runs, three, uh, three Ks. He wasn't the issue in this one. Another strong outing that the Mets just leave Hunt out to dry. Offensively, you get Brandon Nemo with a solo bomb. You get Francisco Lindor with a solo bomb later in the game. And this was a close game for the most part. But what happens is not Bassett, not even just the offense being anemic, But it's the bullpen choking as well. Drew Smith, who struggled with the home run ball. Joe, you said it best in our last pod. Adonis Medina, who got called down, sent down right after our last podcast as we were raving about the man. He's sent down. They bring up Jake Reed. He pitched two scoreless here after Williams in game one, so I understood it. Reed is actually no longer with the Mets, in case you guys don't know. He was a dfa yeah, just today DFA. To, to pick up the Southpaw clay from the Phillies organization. So we'll see if he provides anything or if he'll just be strictly triple-A depth. I understand the Mets want lefties. But going back to Game 2 here, you see Drew Smith give up just a massive two earned runs there. That really blew the doors open. You finally thought that the Mets maybe were able to rally late in this one. Lindor hits that bomb, but that's after it's already a multi-run deficit. And that's all she wrote. Joely Rodriguez gives up a run in the final inning that the Mets pitched. They lose five two. But the biggest gripe to me, even with the bullpen being inconsistent here with Drew Smith, Seth Lugo, these guys that I personally do not trust more than Adonis Medina. Even after Drew having a scoreless outing today in a tied ball game, i uh, at the time of recording this, the Mets go up for seven, not for the not for the only time in this series with runners in scoring position and left 10 on base. If you guys don't know, that's exactly what the Mets did in their series finale in their loss two-nothing. To the Marlins today so what's your quick reaction here to game two and this deficit and how similar it would be to not just games three in which they miraculously come back that will deep dive in a second but especially game four this offense it just it's so Jekyll and Hyde right now I'm starting to lose my mind I really am Uh, it's not it's not fun to watch on a consistent basis whatsoever
0: yeah you know it's really frustrating and a couple things I want to touch on after that little uh Shakespearean soliloquy of yours there (laughs) uh you know first off with game two uh he if you look at the box score, it looks like Bassett had a fine game. I have an issue with how Bassett's been pitching lately. Cuz okay. to me it's it's when you watch him, you know, he's got great stuff. We all know that. He's not pitching tough. He's not pitching like earlier in the year, he had this unwavered confidence when he went out there and like, you know, he was he was dragging his you know what along the dirt when he was out on the hill. Like Bassett took the hill and it was his mound. It was his game. Yeah. And it looks like that confidence has just really since maybe late May, early June, it looks like that confidence has been gone. He looks flustered. He looks like he's he's getting rattled if he doesn't get a call he likes. You know, he looks like he gets a little emotional out there. I haven't seen that just toughness that we saw from Chris Bassett in April when you know he he thought his shit didn't stink and I mean it didn't. He he was great in April. He came out. He was striking everyone out. He was throwing any pitch in any count. And we're just not seeing that from him anymore. You know, my issue with him. Well, obviously, on paper, like I said, you know, he had a fine game. But it's like when the game was 1-1, after, you know, it was 1-0 Marlins, Mets tied it, and he coughed it right back up. And, you know, it took a while. Mets tied it again, I believe, before the Marlins broke it open. um, Or maybe they didn't end up coming back and tying it. But uh, but Bassett, as soon as they did early, as soon as they made it 1-1, he just coughed it right back up. And that, to me, just goes back to the toughness. You know, this Marlins lineup is, you know, they're not – they're not the 0-2 Giants, right? They're not the 0-9 Yankees. I, I mean, come on. This team has the fifth or sixth highest K rate in baseball. Bassett this year has been great with his strikeout numbers. I actually took him over five and a half, and I think he had three. And that just shows that, you know, even though ERA-wise, yeah, six innings, two runs, that, that's all good and well and whatnot, but he didn't have his best stuff because this is a lineup where Bassett should be striking out seven, eight guys against this Marlins lineup. It's not a superior lineup. And, you know, for him, when the Mets tie the game up to cough it right back up, I think part of that was on Bassett. You know, I, I know he was coming off the COVID list and we saw like Joe Musgrove, his first start back from COVID. He stunk. But Bassett was the first one to say he didn't have a symptom. He felt totally fine. I was expecting him to pick up right where he left off. And uh, he just hasn't looked really that good for about over a month by now. But, you know, you talk about that game and you had compared it to. Today, here's my issue with today's loss. If you had said Mets lost one nothing, you know, Walker went seven innings, one run, Alcantara went eight scoreless, whatever, I'd be like, that's fine. But my issue with today's loss is that Alcantara was out of the game. Both starters went seven scoreless. You had a new game. It was bullpen versus bullpen starting in the eighth. There's no excuse for the Mets. Again, I mentioned that this Marlins lineup is nothing that crazy. And I know that they scored in extras when you get the ghost runner and all that crap that I hate. There's no reason that the Mets, with a blank slate, a zero-zero game, bullpen versus bullpen, should lose to the Marlins. It should just simply never happen. No, I I agree with you.
1: And when you look, before we go to Game 4, because I have a lot more raw thoughts to say on that, let's talk for a second about a game that wasn't far off, honestly, from Game 2 and Game 4, and that's Game 3. The Keith Mm -hmm. Hernandez Day, right? How awesome was that ceremony? Can we just take a moment to appreciate Steve Cohen and the entire Mets organization? You have 43,000. It's packed in their city. I had family, friends. Everyone was there enjoying their time. Keith had an absolute blast, and again, to be historic for that to be the first time you went in a walk off after two hours since Game Six of A Six. I mean, that's definitely fitting, right? Um, but the Mets in this game as well, they just they didn't look pretty. They did not look pretty. They were two for seven runners of scoring position. Again, not the worst, but surely not the greatest. And the Mets had solid pitching in this one. Cookie Grasco, he gave up two earned, had five strikeouts, seven hits, and five point two innings pitch. But this was a game where I can't even blame Cookie as much because after Cookie surrender that one run was out of the game what happens right away Seth Lugo the man that we have griped about so much as of late for this Mets bullpen throws a wild pitch like the first pitch he throws just has no command nito's expecting a pitch down and in and it gets like a fast forward off speed way over his head that he had no chance to read the next pitch the same exact thing he finally just gets a, n- a nibble of his glove on it that being Nito to catch it and just like that right when you thought you're getting comfortable that the Mets were able to get, get out of a jam that cookie was in there and the six exits and know that run is going to be cost on him and that is I don't know about you how you feel about this show especially cuz again you played you were a pitcher in college and everything so you have that experience. I want to know what your personal opinions are on being a starter and you leave the game and there's inherited runs on and then those are charged on you when you know damn well that you had better stuff to at minimum lessen things to only give up one earned run at most. I mean so many times I've seen the Mets this year when they have inherited runs on these relievers just don't know what to do with it. Chase and Shreve was a great example for Whoa. the longest time. Yeah. We saw Seth Lugo as well. He's had numerous occasions in which he's blown this. Even Adam Ottavino. I love Adam, but I don't trust Adam too much when it comes to inheriting runs. Speaking of him as well in Game 3, he did give up that home run of Jesus Aguilar on an 0-2 count, which
0: I didn't understand. Yeah, The Marlins have pit. his number this year. That, that, that's twice in the last couple of weeks that's happened to him against the Marlins. It's, it's exactly. kind of it's, weird.
1: It's bizarre. But, you know, before I break down more on the offensive numbers here from Game 3, and then we get a Game mm-hmm. 4 a little bit more. I want to know what's your opinion, again, as a pitcher, knowing that feeling when you're coming out of the game, especially if you're a starter, and you're costing more runs. It hits your ERA when you know damn well that you could have gone out there either unscathed or at minimum
0: giving up just one run? I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend it isn't frustrating. It's very frustrating, right? And I'm always the kind of guy who, if I want something done right, I'm going to do it myself. So, you know, I'd rather be the one to give up the hit or give up, you know, throw the wild pitch. And, and, you know, if, if the runs are going to be charged to me, I'd rather it be my fault and be in my control at least than, you know, out of my control. I'm like that with any situation, not just in sports, but in life, you know, if, if shit hits the fan, I want to be in control of the situation. I don't want to leave my fate, my destiny, my ERA in this case, up to someone else. But ultimately, and this might sound a little politician-esque, you know, it's a team sport. And anytime, you know, I've only played team sports in my life. If I ever got down on a teammate in Little League, you know, my dad was my manager from the time I was, geez, four or five until I was 12. And, you know, if I ever had an attitude problem or, or got on a teammate or, you know, if I was pitching and a kid made an error and I made a face... You know, my dad had no problem in front of everyone yelling at me, hey, if you act like that, I'll put a tennis racket in your hands because this is a team sport, you know? Fair. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm of, you know, the the camp and I was raised that, you know, it's a team sport. What happens, happens. You never get on your teammates. It's frustrating. Hey, look, sometimes you're going to have runners on and a guy's going to, you know, I might leave a game two outs, bases loaded, guy gives up a grand slam, I get charged three of those runs, right? It sucks. But there are other times where, you know, I might leave with second and third and, and one out. And the guy comes in and gets two outs and strands them both. And so, you know, there's always a give and take. It's a team sport. Um, But I will say the biggest takeaway from Cookie's performance for me is the opposite of what I was just saying about Chris Bassett. To me, it's like on paper, maybe Bassett on paper, his numbers were slightly better than Cookie. They were pretty pretty even though. I was more impressed with Cookie's game because Cookie showed more mental toughness. He got the bases loaded got out of it. You know, he, 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 you mentioned he allowed what seven hits and under six innings. He was seemingly in trouble. There was traffic on the base, uh, base pads the entire time he was pitching and he got out of him. He got out of it time after time, allowed two runs, you know, it's a fine start. Cookie is not meant to be our ace, right? Cookie's meant to be our fourth, maybe even fifth starter. And so to me, it's like, I look at him and Bassett and statistically, and this is why stats are misleading. Statistically, they pitched Almost eerily similar games, right? The stat lines are almost identical. I was far more impressed with Cookie's outing, knowing that he doesn't have as good stuff as Bassett, knowing that there was more traffic on the base pads than Bassett dealt with. I was more impressed with Cookie's outing than I was with Bassett's.
1: I agree, especially when you look at Cookie again. Base is juiced. No outs, including errors, st- like stuff that he can't necessarily control, mm-hmm. able to get out of that, right? And again, I, I think the whole point of me talking about for a second, how I'm wanting to know your opinion on, again, giving up a run with inherited run, runners on when a reliever comes in for you. is just the fact that I don't know if you notice this, but this has been a constant issue for the Mets with their bullpen all year long. The bullpen, they've been fine at moments, but especially when it comes to inherited runs. They have been one of the worst teams in baseball, and that's something that, of course, is discouraging to me. I'm sure it is to you and for Mets fans out there listening to this. That's one of many things that needs to change with this team for them to be better down the stretch here in the second half. But let's talk about some positives here quick about this game. Francisco Lindor had that two-run bomb, which was great that you saw there later in the one to give the Mets the lead after they were originally, I believe at that point, they were originally losing, what was it? I, I want to say they were losing... 2-1, and then they got the home run, and that made them get the lead 3 yeah, Alonzo hit the
0: solo, and then yeah, Lindor yeah, hit yeah. the 2 and, run. and
1: then, unfortunately, after that, then we saw the Jesus Aguilar home run. We get to extras, and you just see Lindor probably make one of the best stops you will ever see. Deep, out of short, and shallow outfield, right? Makes a perfect throw, you would imagine, to Eduardo Escobar at third base. Eddie... Looking completely lost, not just at the plate. Wiz defense, once again, is in no position there. He misses that. They charge the error on Lindor, but I'm sorry, my opinion, that is not on Lindor. He made that play happen. As long as Escobar was in the right spot at the right time, that gets Hamilton out of third without him then rounding third to get home with ease. So the Marlins tack on that lead there in extras in top of 10th. And then in the bottom, how funny is it talking about game six of '86? How Brian Anderson does his best Bill Buckner impression. They're at third base. You get Tomas Nito with a little dribbler down the third baseline. Uh, it turns out well, a little, little harder
0: hit than Mookie's.
1: It, it was, <laughs> but still, it was it was nothing drastic. Is my point. That was yeah. an easily play ball. That for whatever reason Anderson, I think he was on his backhand, just couldn't handle whatever it was, and that goes down into the corner and left. That brings in the tie-and-run, and then you see the comebacker, Brandon Nemo to the pitcher, and I love this moment because you could tell the 43,000 Mets fans in there dictated that pitcher and what he was going to do. He couldn't handle the heat. He couldn't handle the moment. They yeet it there to Aguilar, no chance there at first, and that walks it off for the Mets. So overall, it was exciting, a thrilling win in the end. My heart stopped palpitating once they finally got that W, but wasn't the prettiest by any stretch. And as you pivoted then into Game 4 that we just have been talking about, all throughout the first 20 minutes of the show, this was just really discouraging. I mean, Sandy again was strong. Taiwan was an absolute beauty. And Edwin Diaz in back-to-back days gets a couple strikeouts in non-save situations because he's just the best reliever in the world right now. 18
0: Ks for nine, baby.
1: There's just nothing else outside <laughs> of that, though. And that's the frustrating thing because the mess are getting either. stud pitching.
0: I know that Josh Hader had that 19, you know, consecutive scoreless inning streak to start the year, and that's incredible. It's not even close. Edwin Diaz at this pace is your National League reliever of the year. I think oh, since that, Edwin, I mean, Edwin since has then, been on fire. Yes. And, and since Hayter's scoreless streak to start the year, he's been getting touched up. He's been prone to the home run ball, which we see a lot of these closers, you know, who throw gas. There was a time in his Mets tenure where Diaz was giving up a ton of home runs. So we see that, you know, you throw the ball hard, it's going to get hit hard when when it gets hit. Um, but to me, Edwin Diaz has just been so dominant. I have such a calm feeling when he's out on the mound now that I've never had since he's How been in How refreshing a Met. is that? It's so nice. That? I mean, it's when's the last so time you you had that? I mean, I guess there was, I mean, even when Familia set the Mets single season uh, single season save record, there was still it seemed like always traffic. I mean, the last time I remember being that calm when a closer was on the bump, maybe a little with Familia, but like Billy Wagner, really.
1: Do you remember uh, when Familia? Fun fact: When he you you wouldn't know this because you're a Familia lover. So I love him. when he made that single um, uh, season save record in Chicago. That was bases juice, no outs. I remember literally biting my tongue, flipping the hell out at wow. home, watching this game.
0: Did and he j- did he load him up or did he come in because someone he else loaded him it. up? And he got oh, out of the wow. jam.
1: It was ridiculous. It was yeah. like, my goodness gracious. Talk about a memory that popped in. Like They were in Chicago and regularly, it was bases juiced, and it looked like that it was going to snap. Um, Finally, him like in the consecutive save streak. But no, yeah. he was able to get out of that and it
0: continued and it was electric. Insane. I mean, when I think Julius Familia and Wrigley, I think, you know, game four, not even a save situation, but the NLCS and, yep. and just all the emotions that night. Hey, you know, we've got a playoff atmosphere coming up. Let's dive in to this Brave series because this game one pitching matchup that we're about to see. I mean, this could be game one of the NLDS. It could be game one of the NLCS. Max Freed, Max Scherzer. I mean, just pitching to the max. I, I cannot wait. It's all maxed out, baby. <laughs> I can't wait. I mean, there's, there's so many puns. It's stupid. I can't <laughs> wait for the series, for this game. This is crucial, Tyler. What, what do you think? Is this the most important? Where would this rank for you in terms of important games so far this season? They've played, what, 84 games? How does this rank in terms of importance?
1: In my personal opinion, I think that this is the most important game to date. And the reason why is not the fact that look, Mad Max is five and one with a 2.26 ERA. just pitched absolutely dominant in Cincinnati, which is so hard. A great American the Mets blew that game, as we know, because he couldn't have offense. They one need offense here, but two Max career-wise against the Braves has an ear just under four. The Braves have tacked on, on him a bit. So that's something yeah. to keep in mind in this matchup. So we need Max on the money in Atlanta especially, but more than anything, Max has been the most guaranteed win of a pitcher from the Mets all year long. It really isn't that close outside of Cookie. And again, Cookie, he's not matched up in this series to begin with. So you look at this matchup, this, in my opinion, can easily make or break the entire series. If the Mets go out and Max comes out dominant, and they get – at least a couple runs there on Max Fried in this one, and let's not forget the Mets. They weren't terrible against Max Freed earlier this year. They got two earned runs off of like four hits or so through six. Again, not the prettiest, but at least they did some damage. And their series split earlier this year, like back in April. Yeah. So I'll take knew- I'll
0: take that. I'll take two runs in the first five or six, as long as you hit the uh, hit the pen. You know, yep. I'll take that off Fried.
1: Exactly, and that's why this game is so pivotal for me because one, Max, he needs to be on the money. I expect him to to a degree, but he, again, is the biggest lock of a victory the Mets have had for the most part this season, right? So if you cannot get that much of a lock, then you have, of course, game two, you have facing Spencer Strider, who's already the most electrifying starter in baseball right now since he's been called up from the Braves. Reliever, now starter, this guy pumps 99 on the gun like nothing, has ridiculous off-speed stuff, and just set a Braves record in his last start in the first nine players that he made come out of the game Outwise, wise we're all strikeouts. I mean, this guy is simply unhittable right now. He's disgusting. I have no clue the Mets are going to match up from him. But before we even get there, the Mets and lefties, we know that narrative. It's continued. They jumped at mm-hmm. Costano. I know that Costano and Freed are a little bit different. But still, I need to see this team actually step up to the plate. They know how pivotal this series is. But don't press. The Braves are winning. They're playing so well because they're not pressing. They're just comfortable. The Braves are rolling right now, so similar to how the Mets were rolling earlier this year. Maybe not so much with the home run ball because the Braves have been ridiculous with the home run, run home run ball, like over 130 bombs. only seven
0: guys with ten or more.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're they're just on another level right now. Um, but not even that. Look, they've only surrendered like half that so far this season, two home run wise. Yeah. But the bigger thing is that. When you watch the Braves play, it doesn't matter if they have a deficit like they did today at the time of recording this, heading into the ninth, 3 2 against the Nationals. What does Austin Riley do? Hits a game time bomb. Why? Because, of course, he's going to. This is something that's expected. What isn't expected is the Braves to lose a close game like this because of how on the money – they have been for a month and a half now. They deserve all the credit. They played poor teams. They dominated them. They played better teams, and they have dominated them too, okay? And that's why it's so important for the Mets to try to get momentum swings here leading into this um, uh, Brave series that they, unfortunately, were not able to do to the degree that I would have liked to see nor any fan would have liked to see to this point. But game one, to answer your question in a nutshell, yes, I think that is the most important. Max Freed on the year is an absolute stud. 9-2 with a 2.52-year and then game two, I mean, I want to know, what's your quick reaction on Strider? Because he has just been a revelation for this brave starting rotation. I mean, out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, Strider's phenomenal. He's sensational. He's, you know, he's one of the few guys that's must watch TV when he's on the bump. You know, it's like, I've got the MLB TV package. And, you know, when I see Alcantara's pitching, I'm watching the Marlins. When I see Strider's pitching now, I'm tuned into the Braves. The NLK's yeah. per nine liter at about 11 and a half is Corbin Burns, the reigning Cy Young Award winner. One of the best pitchers in baseball. Strider, now he doesn't qualify yet. He doesn't have enough innings pitched because he started the year 11 relief appearances before making his last eight appearances as a starter. Strider's at 14 Ks per nine. Now you can look at that. That's two and a half Ks per nine higher than the National League leader. Now you can look at that and say, well, that's probably juiced up from when he was a reliever those first 11 appearances, right? Wrong. As a starter in those eight starts, his Ks per nine are actually at 14.1. So 0.1 higher, essentially even, essentially the same Strider has been as dominant a pitcher as there is in baseball this year. I know he's only made eight starts to me. We'll get into all-star results later on in the show. He's one of the biggest snubs. Now, I thought Snicker made some real homer decisions with some of the backups in the National League, but I actually thought leaving Spencer Strider off the all-star team was kind of crazy because he's been as dominant as anyone. I don't care about sample size. Did it in the pen, doing it as a starter, just like Christian Javier this season, with, uh, with the Houston Astros, and both of them have been dominant since they've been in the rotation. Strider scares the shit out of me, personally. I mean, you know, he's the reason you need to win game one because game two, you know, you have to go in, obviously no team in baseball ever goes into a game expecting to lose, but as a fan base, you have to go in with low expectations, with tempered expectations in game two. You know, David Peterson, looking at his numbers against the Braves, two and two in his career, ERA is up over 5.8, but he's actually had some really good starts. He had a 10K performance early on in his career against the Braves. And it's weird because while his ERA is damn near six, if you look at how current Braves hitters have fared against Peterson, Ronald Acuna is just one for seven off. I mean, he's got about four walks in there, but just one for seven. And then Darno and Ozuna are a combined 0 for 18 with nine strikeouts against Peterson. No one in this Braves lineup actually has a, track record of sustained success against Peterson and the way Peterson's pitched so far this season, you know, obviously struggled to dash in Cincinnati, but still had seven K's in his last four starts. He's averaging eight K's per start. Hasn't gone lower than seven in any of them And this Braves team. They do strike out a lot, Tyler. They're a yeah. top five strikeout team in major league baseball. I believe top two or three in the National League alone. So Peterson, the way he's been striking guys out lately. Scherzer, the way he strikes guys out every start. You know, this team, they're different from the Mets in the sense where the Mets have been struggling in the in power department. But Atlanta is very all or nothing. Keep the ball in the ballpark and you're keeping your team in the game. So Peterson, I'm not really worried about that career ERA against Atlanta. I'm more worried with his more recent body of work. This is essentially the first time we've seen Peterson up until july be a full-time starter i know april he was kind of a spot guy but really since may he's had about two and a half three months under his belt as being a full-time starter this season and we've seen tremendous results so you know if him and strider can get into a duel i'm not really counting the mets out and then just bringing it back to game one that battle of the maxes freed versus scherzer you know you look at freed's number uh his numbers against the mets five and three with a two eight uh ten k's per nine he's been dominant but the Mets always seem to get a run or two. So it's just really a matter of, you know, will the Mets win a pitcher's duel or will they lose a pitcher's duel? They're probably not gonna shell read, but there is a chance, like you said, like earlier in the year, five, six innings, two runs. There's a chance the Mets can do that. So they've gotta win these pitching duels, right? The big point for me is I'm tired of losing these pitcher's duels. We had Castano Peterson lost three to two. We had Scherzer in Cincinnati, six scoreless 11 Ks, lost one, nothing. Today with Walker and Alcantara, Lost two nothing after even our Walker goes
1: to Yeah,
0: I, I'm exactly. I'm tired of the Mets have had a lot of great starting pitching performances. I'm tired of losing these one nothing, two one, two nothing games. Right, teams that are going to win a World Series win those close games. They win one run, two run games. They win pitchers duels. So I'm really, really tired of losing that. You know, you could have two pitchers duels here to start off the series in Atlanta. I mean, you could even have three the way Charlie Morton's been going lately uh wednesday when you have bassett martin it's like these are going to be close games you got to win them you got to win them
1: yeah and look strider right now in case you guys don't know statistically four and two with a 2.6 year ray pearson on the year five and one one loss record 3.48 year right something that you emphasized perfectly joe was the numbers which i found interesting especially with Darno and ozuna why is that important to me well, Travis Darno has been easily one of the Mets' biggest nemesis since he, of course, departed with the Mets. That we have yeah. Birdie Van Wagenen. Um, you know, I, I, don't. Let me put it this way: I, I'm conflicted. Just to go on a slight tangent, where Birdie Van Wagenen they signed, um, they signed Darno to that new deal that off season, right? He gets a couple at-bats, and they cut him. He goes to the Dodgers. Okay, nothing happens. And he ends up eventually with the Braves, you know, finds a swing. He's dealt with injuries throughout his entire career, but there's no denying that Darneau has been a crucial factor for the Braves, not just as a decent framer, solid, not, nothing crazy but not terrible, but that offense has been pivotal. And when you look at the fact that David Pearson has done so well against him, I find that encouraging, and I hope that trend continues because if there's one guy that I am genuinely concerned about in this series, as deep as this Braves lineup is, as I'll be breaking down the numbers here shortly, Darno is towards the tip of the top of my list. You'd have to be the best player on that team to potentially be the best player in a series like this. And Darno, unfortunately, former friend, now foe, Man, oh man, has he been a thorn in this Mets' side every single time they matched up with his time in Atlanta, um, and Game Three as well. This is a huge matchup, and this one I got to say I'm—I don't know what to expect. I think that there's a lot of similarities here versus Bassett, and same thing with Charlie Moore in here in Game Three. This will be the day game, twelve twenty p.m. Eastern time. Seabass Bass is six and six on the year with a three point nine four ERA. And then you also have the likes of um, Morden on the season, who's 5-3 and three with a 4.2 on ear race. So this is going to be an interesting battle. But Bassett, three earned runs and seven innings the last time he pitched Atlanta earlier this year. And Morden gave up five runs, four earned, and 5.2 against the Mets earlier this year. But Morden has settled down a bit. So what's your quick takeaway on this game three and really this series overall, Joe?
0: Yeah, so, so this is an interesting one too because the Mets have actually fared pretty well against Charlie Morton. You know, you mentioned that game on May 3rd where he went uh, five and two thirds, you know, five runs allowed, four of those were earned. The Mets really tattooed him. And his last four starts against the Mets, he's one and one, but with a four six six ERA. Now you look at their season numbers and maybe it looks like Bassett's having a better season than Morton. Right now, Charlie Morton's definitely the better pitcher because while the Mets had success against him in May, while they've had success against him is you know, their last uh, four times facing him in his last five starts, He's gone seven innings or more four of those five starts. He's only one and zero. He doesn't get a lot of decisions, but he's two and zero I believe over his last like eight starts. And in those last five, he's one and zero with a 1.6 ERA, and he's averaging 11.2 Ks per nine. Morton's not having the collective body of work this season that other guys around him in Atlanta are. You know, Kyle Wright might look like he's having a better year on paper. He is start to to where we are right now. Morton's way hotter than Kyle Wright right now. At the moment, the Mets are facing Atlanta's three hottest pitchers. Probably their two best in Freed and Strider. And then Morton, over the past five, six starts, he's been lights out. Like I said, 11.2 Ks per nine. So, you know, there is a chance if the Mets don't pounce on Atlanta game one, it's reasonable, it's realistic to see them getting swept here. So that's why game one is so crucial. You got to win that and then split the final two. And this is the last thing I'll say about this series and, and about game one. Losing Jeff McNeil is going to hurt so much. He is the only guy in the Mets lineup. Now, look, if you're one of those fans that say, oh, well, you know, he shouldn't be going on paternity, you got to have a human element to you, folks. You know, Jeff McNeil's not doing anything wrong here by going to be present for the birth of what I believe is his first child. Yes. But it's a killer because with guys who have had at least double-digit at-bats against Max Freed, McNeil's the only guy with any sustained success. He's hitting 364 against Freed, 8 for 22. Alonzo's four for 21 against him it's a 190 clip but he's got a couple home runs it's just a matter of getting these guys on base you know Lindor has really struggled against lefties this year you know you saw in his last at-bat today against Scott the Marlins closer he looked ugly he was up he looks like Alonzo
1: Yeah, exactly how he looked.
0: He was up in the count 2 0. He chased what would have been ball three, you know, could have led to the Mets having the bases loaded. He chased it and then he swung it a couple. uh, I believe the next pitch was a strike and then the 2 2 slider was also out of the zone. It was inside. So Lindor looked lost against the lefty. It's like, you know, without McNeil in there to give you a guaranteed base hitter out, to give you a guaranteed good at bat, it's going to be really tough. But the Mets really need to take this game one against Free.
1: Yes, they do. And not just McNeil, Marte as well. Now, thankfully for the Mets, look, James McCann is out for multiple weeks, and that's why I'll be discussing catcher here shortly um, to see what the Mets are going to do there. That's a big topic, in my opinion. But Marte did have some positive news on the left groin issue that he was uh, dealing with with his MRI. So he's day-to-day will be avoiding the IL, and that tells me that we're probably going to be without Marte for at minimum one game in this series, potentially two. So that's something to definitely be looking out for in this one. Not having Marte or McNeil in this set against the Braves, I'm not feeling all that confident from the overall depth of this offense. In comparison to the Braves, who again have at least seven guys with 10 plus bombs this year, and there's three guys that stand out to me. We talk about one in Darno, who again is having a solid year, not nothing crazy, but again against Mets 11 home runs a total, 37 RBIs, it's just sub 800 OPS and around a 270 average. But Austin Riley, who's one of the best sluggers in all the NL, he's been a murderer of the Mets. 23 bombs, 56 RBIs, 24 bombs now if you count the one from today's, if I'm not mistaken. A 908 OPS and a sub 300 average. And the third guy, even though you have Acuna, you have Harris a 3rd who's been a young stud of a rookie for them. Contreras at DH, Olsen, all these guys. I got to go with Dansby Swanson because he's having a breakout year. The former first overall pick is finally stepping up. 14 bombs, 50 RBIs, 14 stolen bags, 848 OPS, and an over 300 average. And looking at these two teams, the biggest factor outside the offense that we've seen as of late, in my opinion, is that bullpen. The Mets right now are ranked 15th per fan graphs in bullpen. Guess what the Braves are, Joe?
0: Got to be top five. They're number one. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't shock me at all. By the way, you bring up Swanson, and this is the one bright spot because Scherzer has actually struggled, you know, especially for Max, 3.88 ERA. Well, for other pitchers that might be average or even good, for Max, that's struggling mightily against the Braves in his 25 career starts against them. Dansby Swanson against Scherzer, just 7 for 38. It's a 184 clip and 15 strikeouts. That's a 40% K rate. So Swanson, you know, he's been the best offensive shortstop in the National League. Since May 1st, Trey Turner obviously has been great all year. Swanson had an awful April, has been absolutely otherworldly since May 1st. So since then, you're going with one of the hottest shortstops in baseball, the best in the National League versus a dominant pitcher. I mean, that's going to be a really fun matchup to watch. Well, Swanson, you know, his two plus months of great baseball outweigh his career struggles against Scherzer. That's going to be another key matchup because he's a table setter, man. I mean, you know, he can turn a single into a triple like that. So that's that's going to be some game.
1: Yeah, the offense is, is locked and loaded. We'll see who prevails in this one. All I know is that this is far and away the biggest series the Mets truly have so far this year. Yeah. And We'll see how it turns out. But now let's get into a quick update now on Jacob DeGrom. In case you guys don't know, and Joe, I want to know your reaction. Jake had his second rehab start a couple days ago. Easily for Port St. Lucie, went three innings, had himself giving up three hits, zero earned runs, anything of that nature, six strikeouts on 36 pitches. What's your quick reaction
0: to that? I think with the numbers he's putting up in the minor leagues, he should be in the Futures game next weekend, right? (laughs) He's a young butting prospect, is he not? Right, the Mets' best prospect is 34 years old. Uh, (laughs) I mean, look, DeGrom is DeGrom. I think he's ready. I think it's just a matter of getting his pitch count up. Um, Obviously, you know, I'm not seeing six strikeouts against, you know, 18-year-olds and and salivating, but he's doing what he's supposed to do, right? I, I mean, he's not giving up hits, so... It's you know Jake's ready. It's like I said, it's just a matter of longevity and getting his pitch count up. Uh, I, I I want him up in two weeks. You know I I need him back even if it's not for the Padres series right out of the All Star break. He's got to be back for the Yankees. In fact, I would give him that those extra three four days off because I think it's three with San Diego and then an off day Monday and then I believe it's Tuesday Wednesday with the Stanks. And uh, I need Degrom back for that Subway Series. That's a must.
1: It feels like a lock at this point because his next start is going to be with Triple A Syracuse, moving up in the world, Ooh, and that'll baby. be either Wednesday or Thursday of uh, this uh, this week again. This week, they have that? Again. Uh,
0: I think they got the New York State Fair coming up. I, I know that's always in Syracuse in the summertime. That's about, oh, there you uh, go. Yeah, the only reason to go to Syracuse in the uh, <laughs> anytime it's, really. It's it's gonna be
1: it's gonna be a sold out crowd. This will also be the first many times that you see young star Francisco Alvarez catching Jacob Degrom. So that's going to be really, really exciting. Uh, I'd love to get six, seven years of that moving forward. I, I think I think we're getting really close. And speaking of catching, let's pivot now into a big topic of discussion, which is the Mets catching position, right? James McCann, look, he just came back from the IL, had a big bomb that we saw there in the series. But other than that, James McCann, we know he's by no means an offensive guru. He is strong at the plate defensively. But that will only take you so far, again, as I don't know if I said this already, but you have Contreras, who's playing DH slash catcher, For the Braves, you have Darno, them combined have over 20 bombs this year. The Mets in their entire catching position have a measly three. Not that home runs mean everything, but depth is definitely important. And with the Mets now without McCann for another multiple weeks, looks like at minimum he's going to be out a month. I don't expect him back prior to the trade deadline. I think that'd be wishful thinking at this juncture with an oblique injury that he's dealing with. So, Joe, when you look at the Mets in their catching spot right now, Patrick Mazika is with the team, but no disrespect to Patty, but we all know he's an automatic out. He's even somehow, way <sighs> the worst option the Mets have offensively. Other three catchers. So it leads you with two different options. Do you go internal or external? Now, I don't think we need to harp on much with Francisco Alvarez more. You and yeah, I have handed... Yeah, exactly. We've both been in the same agreement that as much as we would love Alvarez with the Mets to suggest that he would be up th- this year. Prior to the end of the year would be really, really outlandish. And for anyone that is thinking otherwise, unless we're proven otherwise, that we get a spontaneous call up, do not bet the house on it by any stretch. He's already five games through AAA Syracuse, has around 400-something OPS. So he's definitely getting that adjustment now, some more big, close to big league pitching here in AAA. So it's going to be some time for Francis Cryer, as much as we love the kid and want to see him, now probably is not the time, to put it lightly. However, that leads us with external options. And the Mets, you'd have to imagine that they are more enticed than ever now, especially with McCann being out at minimum a month, right? And even when he returns, how much production are you going to get? Even with a healthy James McCann and Tomas Nito, I'm not trusting this offense one bit. And if it's going to be such a detriment to the bottom half of this order every single game, then by God, we have problems for Mets team that is already struggling on a day-to-day basis offensively as is. So that leads you with a couple options. And the cream of the crop, the guy that, of course, the Mets us fans would love is Wilson Contreras. He's a rental, so yes, he's going to cost you a bit, not hopefully not too much, but Contreras is really the best catcher in baseball right now, or easily one of them. He has a 270 average, a 387 on base, a roughly 500 slugging this year, a 148 WRC+, 13 bombs, 46 runs scored, 35 RBIs. He's your starting catcher for the NL in this year's All-Star game that will be in the All-Star discussion soon, but what's your kind of thoughts on Wilson? Again, to me, I know the Mets would love him. It's just about parting with top prospects, but do you think the Mets may be more enticed now than ever, not just with Wilson, but with a reliever that they have shown re- recent interest in, in the veteran David Robertson? So think about a potential package.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the thing to me. That, that's why Contreras actually, in my opinion, becomes realistic. Look, I'm on the record saying I can live with James McCann and Tomas Nito being your catching duo going to the playoffs, right? Because the Mets, you know, when everyone's healthy, when these guys are clicking, it's a pretty damn good lineup. So I can live with your catcher or rather two catchers who are both defensive specialists being your nine hitters in the postseason. I'm okay with that. But now with McCann out, I love Mazika. He's fun. I know he came up and he had like the two walk-offs. I believe one was like that swinging bunt dribbler and another was a sack fly. Last season when he was new to the team, he's not an MLB player, right? Yeah. Patrick Mazika's is just, he's a career minor leaguer. He's not an MLB caliber player. So now you look at the Cubs and this is a team that the Mets front office has rapport with. Look, I know Billy Eppler's in his first year with the Mets, but Steve Cohen was there last year. Alderson always has his fingerprint on everything. The Mets dealt with the Cubs a year ago. They got Javi Baez. They sent Crow Armstrong, the outfield prospect, who is playing in the Futures game, over to Chicago. So it's a team, it's a, it's a front office that they've dealt with recently, that even though they're in the same league and historically they've got a decent rivalry, it's a team that they're comfortable dealing with. It's comfortable dealing with us. Contreras is a rental. The Cubs know that. Robertson's a rental. He's also 37. I mean, I don't know how much it would take to get them. You're going to have to part with one top prospect. You you don't have an option here, but what are you going to do with these guys? You've got right now, Alvarez, Beatty, Vientos, Mauricio. Beatty and Alvarez aren't going anywhere. So that leaves you Mauricio and Vientos. I'm assuming it's going to be Mauricio and then maybe another low-level prospect or maybe you know a J.D. Davis, maybe a major league guy. But... You know, at some point, look, would it stink if Mauricio goes on to have a great career? Yes. Everyone was losing their minds over Kalenich, and he's done nothing so far with Seattle. So, you know, Lindor up the middle. We're set. Lindor and hopefully McNeil for a long time to come. you have got Guillaume as well at some point. Yeah, maybe it's time to part with Mauricio. Go get a catcher who is a great defender and also the best offensive catcher in baseball, bar none. And go get a back-end reliever because, you know, these guys have been uh, have been really shaky and inconsistent. They started the year great, like you mentioned. Now they're middle of the road, 15th best bullpen in baseball. So, yeah, go get Robertson. Pair him back with Adovino, the former Yanks, both about 37 years old, both having great years. Go get Contreras. Um, I, I don't think, you know, it depends what other teams offer. That's always the variable. Yes. I don't think, on paper, it should really cost much more than Mauricio just because, Contreras is a rental I mean you know last year we got Baez for Crow Armstrong that was straight up you know we got Trevor Williams too uh did we give him anything else besides Pete or was that it it, it was just Pete yeah and, and I think Mauricio is a better prospect than uh than Crow Armstrong so yeah go get Contreras and Robertson
1: yeah and that's a thing because when we've seen recent reports right the Mets at least to this juncture have not been in favor of doing the same exact thing they did last year, as a matter of fact. They apparently, yeah. from what is being out there, they do not want to part with any top prospects for any type of position player. But, but where, where's
0: Mauricio going to be long-term? No, That's no, no, my no, uh,
1: exactly. My, no, let me put it this way. I do believe that Mauricio will be dealt at some point, but I do believe that in, in his case, it might be more realistic to potentially... Be dealt to a team where you can get more of a controller player like a Luis Castillo or Frankie Montas. Those feel ideal as well. But to put that aside for a second, did you man... hear that by the way? Yeah, I did hear it. Sounded like a ghost. Side. Yeah, it's
0: like my, my neighbors are moving furniture over here in my apartment complex. It sounds like a whale like <laughs> <shooting> its <laughs> I it's don't know a what's whale going Right on in the heart sure. of LA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um
1: uh, but okay. So let me just talk for a second because <laughs> you see the Mets here and you have Contreras, right? You have Robertson, they're gonna cost you an arm and a leg, not too much, but a decent amount at least one of those top prospects now while the Mets have been reluctant to do this what we do know is that it all it takes is for a significant injury potentially like McCann to change their mindsets even with Alvarez supposed to be ready by next year do the Mets potentially go all in for Contreras and Robertson, you kill two birds with one stone. And hey, that is X Factors for the Mets going all the way this year. No one and their mother will be complaining about the Mets parting ways with the top prospect for rental, shouldn't they bring back neither this offseason? Again, Contreras, you could potentially bring back, and maybe you can balance him and say someone like Alvarez at D8 slash catcher if you can part with James McCann's contract separately. But that's a big question mark. We don't know yeah. that at this point in time. It's so- a lot of shuffling. Yeah, but we do know that the Mets have to act in the now. They're in a win-now stage right now. If you're going to go all-in this season, you have to look at the likes of Contreras. I would say now more than ever, given the recent status of McCann, and even when McCann's in the lineup, I don't, I'm not trusting him. And when you look at how much of an of offensive liability he's been, Mr. Double-Play Machine, and Nito, I mean, Nito's so hit or miss as it is still. He's not terrible, but he's definitely not great either. It does leave you to wonder. And one more thing I want to add on the catcher segment is there's two other guys. There's Sean Murphy from the Oakland A's. That's a guy to keep in consideration. I know he's in the prettiest name out there, but there's no denying that he still would be an upgrade over what the Mets have right now and surely an upgrade over Patrick Mazzica. You know, he's on team control until 2026 and this season he is batting. He is batting low only 230 a 300 on base and a 404 slugging nine home runs, 13 RBI, uh, 34 RBIs and 32 runs scored. For the young catcher, that that most certainly would help. That would be the Mets' best offensive catcher already this season and will not cost you an arm and a leg by any stretch. Maybe you consider pairing him with, I don't know, a nice on A.J. Puck that you have there from – or Puck, pardon me, Puck or Puck, I don't know his name, from the Oakland A's, or even
0: a Frankie Montas if you're really interested in him. Yeah, or yeah if you... that, that's what I would see happening. But the thing with Murphy is, like, if it's just him solo, I don't want to give too much up. I mean, maybe a low-level prospect, maybe even just cash because – This is a guy who, you know, I don't think he's a guarantee to make the postseason roster if they were to go out and trade for Murphy. You know, you need two catchers. If everyone's healthy, I'm taking Nito over Murphy. I mean, just because of his defensive prowess and and the fact that Nito with runners in scoring position has been serviceable this year offensively. I think we spoke about this last episode. He's actually better hitting with runners on as opposed to with the bases empty. So, you know, I I would Murphy, I would give up very little for because I don't even know if he'd be on the October roster.
1: I don't think that it would cost you a crazy amount to land him, though, either. Especially Mm -hmm. because, again, he's a low-average hitter, has some pop in his bat, and can definitely bring you more offensive production than what the Mets have gotten. And the last guy that, again, would be a little bit more costly for you, but this is where it would make sense. Say the Mets go out, they go to Cincinnati, they say, hey, we really want a Luis Castillo or Tyler Maley, two pitchers that they've shown interest in. Maybe they want a bullpen piece, too. Maybe they really are interested in Edwin Diaz's brother, who's having a great year. But you look at the catching position, and you have Tyler Stevenson, who's one of the best catchers in baseball, along with Wilson Contreras. Right, he's hitting over 300 this year, a 363 on base, and a 466 slugging, five home runs, 22 runs scored, 31 RBIs for the 25-year-old. Not a free agent until 2027. So again, if you do a big deal, you're you're gonna give up some assets. But the caveat is, is that if you get Stevenson, you get Alvarez, and you somehow, some way bury McCann's contract next year, then you can have that DH slash catching duo with the two next season, which can be appealing. And the Mets, you have options. I would love the Mets to have two really rock-solid catching options for the next how many years under team control. So, again, if you're going all in, you're going to give up assets, this might be one of the better routes to go should they be able to swing something. But, again, it will be costly.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, if the Mets could somehow, with Chicago, work McCann and Mauricio in the deal for Contreras and Robertson, I mean, that pretty much guarantees that next year Alvarez is is your guy. You know, unless they somehow re-sign Contreras, Uh, with him being an impending free agent, that would intrigue me. McCann's had success in Chicago before playing on the South side. So if they were to package him, guarantees next year, Alvarez is probably your opening day starter with Nito as the backup. That would be interesting. But, you know, yeah, Cincinnati, another great point. I don't see it happening because Stevenson's got about another four years after this season of club control. So I feel like Cincinnati might try to fleece us. But, you know, their owner hasn't tried to win in, uh, in decades. So, you know, maybe there's a possibility there that, you know, with the Reds and A's, I really only want to do a deal with them if uh, if we're kind of fleecing them, to be completely honest. The Cubs, I'm willing to give up a little more because Contreras has proven he's been the best catcher in baseball for the better part of a half decade. Since he and Oakland, I really only want a, a generous deal for the Mets in our favor.
1: And I'm glad that you brought up to wrap up this catcher discussion potentially McCann going to the Cubs. I wonder if that would be somewhat ideal for them, right? Because you give up your rental catcher for a catcher that has another year of control. Maybe that means that you for certain, of course, still have to tack on a Mauricio or a top prospect. But what that does do for you in the Mets case, again, is you open up that spot. That way, yeah. look, at worst, Nito is not with the active roster next year. But that's because you have Alvarez and Contreras as your one-two. Or you have maybe Contreras at DH and then you have Alvarez gain reps at catcher along with Nito. Like you can go about it in a lot of different variations, but I am glad that you brought up that McCann aspect because you would imagine a Cubs team that is looking, you know, they're in the retool right now. Contreras is not expected to sign long term with them. They can get value and again, get still a young catcher in return that can be controllable for them for at minimum another year. So it's an interesting point for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tyler, you know, I've been waiting almost an hour now to get into it. I'm really into the all-star rosters. Let's go. I am so heated right now. looking, at, And it's not just for Mets, right? Like, you know, you look at the American League. So I projected the 32-man rosters. Obviously, both rosters are 33 men, but I didn't bother projecting the commissioner pick, which ended up being Cabrera in the American League, Miggy, and then Pujols in the National League, because that pick is really a ceremonial roster spot. So I projected the 32 deserved or quote-unquote deserved roster spots. And in the American League, I did really well. Went 26 out of 32. Dylan Cease being left off the American League roster. He has been one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball. Over his last six or seven starts, he's pitched to a sub 0.5 ERA. He has been absolutely unreal. Has the second best strikeout numbers in the American League, only to Shane McClanahan of Tampa Bay. Cease being left off that AL roster made absolutely zero sense. Also, Ty France for the Mariners, who is statistically, you can argue, the best hitting first baseman in the American League. Doesn't have Guerrero's power numbers, but leads first baseman in average, leads him in OPS. Oh, he
1: was completely robbed.
0: France being left off is absolutely insane. So, those are my two gripes with the AL. But when you look at the National League roster, got four Mets, got Alonzo, McNeil, Marte. Marte, I feel, should have been a starter. He's a he's a reserve. He finished fourth in voting. Jock Peterson edged him out for that third and final starting spot. And then Edwin Diaz, no brainer in the bullpen. Taiwan Walker deserves to be an All Star this year. And this is a problem when you have the every team needs to be represented rule. I think which, it's
1: complete bullshit. I'm sorry. I've never been. In, I'm never. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm not a fan of I, that. I
0: kind of like it. I'm not. But I right. feel like I, I feel like you know pundits and reporters. I feel like we put a little more effort into it. Like it's, I think it's a good rule. It's very unique to baseball. And like I, I think I said it last episode. Baseball is the only All Star game that I love that I care about. Um, and so I, I like that that unique, you know, aspect of it. But you really need to be thoughtful about how you construct the roster. And you know, we saw Snicker really. You know, I felt like the Braves could have actually had more pitchers. On this pitching staff, but we saw him load up Braves on the reserves for the National League. Travis Darno is having a really good season. He, I don't think, because of that rule, deserved to be an all-star. I thought Dalton Varshaw, the Diamondbacks catcher, would have made more sense because now, with this rule, you've got Joe Mantiply, who I love, who I think the Mets should go out and explore as a left-handed uh, reliever, you know, on the trade market, but you've got Mantiply taking up an all-star spot. You only have 12 spots for pitchers, guys. And look, the sad reality is that there's about 20 to 24 deserving pitchers in the National League this year. Offense is down, pitching is up. So it's really hard to narrow it down to the best 12, and I can appreciate that. But Mantiply is a middle reliever lefty specialist. Having an amazing season should not be on the all-star team. And the D-backs could have sent their catcher of our show, who power number-wise is one of the best hitting catchers in baseball this year. He, I think, over Darno would have made a lot more sense to free up one of those pitching spots. Because a guy like Taiwan Walker... You know, I love to point out, if you eliminate one start for Taiwan Walker, his first start back off the injured list in early May against Philadelphia, where he went four innings and allowed seven runs, six of them earned. If you take that one start away from the guy who is seven and two on the season, his ERA drops from already an incredible 2.6, where it's at right now after today's start against Miami, to 2.09. How are you going to leave a guy off who, with the exception of one start, has pitched to a sub 2.1 ERA, and he's not an all-star. To that point, Zach Wheeler left off the all-star team, the former men. Now, I'm not trying to give Philadelphia any brotherly love over here, but <laughs> Zach Wheeler, since his first you know, three starts of the year, and then he spent a brief stint on the IL, ever since coming off the IL himself, he's pitched to a sub 2 ERA. I mean, Wheeler and Walker, really big snubs off the all-star team. I even thought Spencer Strider... Deserve to make it for Atlanta. I know he's only made eight starts, but that 14 uh, Ks per nine is absolutely insane. But instead, because of this rule, as I drop my pen, sorry, you've got Mantiply, you've got Bednar making the team where I thought Brian Reynolds in the outfield would have made a lot more sense for Pittsburgh than Bednar taking up a bullpen spot. Kershaw, you know, and this is like the sentimental crap that, you know, I get it. Kershaw, he's having a really good season, but he's missed a lot of time due to injury. And I get the whole Dodger stadium thing. I'm sorry. There are a lot of better options. Wheeler, Walker, you could argue Carlos Rodon even though he's had a few starts where he's gotten shelled, but his strikeout numbers are through the roof. Strider, I mean, they were just I thought the National League a lot of great pitchers were left off and Taiwan Walker is as good as anyone.
1: So, do you want to hear a harsh reality about this show, which I'm sure you already know to an extent? Yeah. The all, the All-Star game they they say it's for the fans, right? Yeah. But in in reality it's for viewership. So, when you're in LA, especially, something of that nature, naturally, Kershaw's a lock. Even even to an extent of him having an even worse season than way he is right now. Again, he's having a good year, but he has dealt with injuries. This is something that, again, it's about the promotion. It's about gassing up this thing the best we can with the biggest names that we possibly can. So naturally, I'm not surprised that a fan base to a far larger magnitude, even with the bias with Snitker um, and Darnell getting in over someone like Varsho, like those are factors, believe it or not. Maybe they 100%. vary, of, of course, but they're always something to keep in mind when looking at the voting, along with the obvious nature of fans being able to be the reason who gets voted in, which I just think is absolute nonsense. Because if Ozzie yeah. Albies wasn't injured, right? I mean, like the fact that McNeil's only in right now because of
0: Albies being hurt and Jazz, yeah, Chisholm. And Jazz, and, a few, and, too, and Ronald right? Acuna. Look, look, Ronald Acuna. Much like Juan Soto making the team this year, you know, there's no question these guys are two of the brightest stars in baseball. Acuna doesn't even have 20 RBI. I, I mean, you know, he's been injured. It's isn't it supposed to be the 2022 Major League All Star game? And Juan Soto sure making the that team shot should
1: be a factor, right? Yeah, it's about how percent being
0: on the field is a major factor, and and yeah. Wayne thing we know that like the best, the best ability is availability, right? And like yeah. you know, for Washington, look, we know Juan Soto is the best player on the Nationals, right? But Josh Bell, I thought this year was way more deserving of having a uh, of 1, making the All One thousand percent team. agree so, with you. And yeah, the only that, reason why that, that really annoyed me that Bell didn't, yeah, Bell didn't make it.
1: Yeah, Bell didn't make it. I mean, look, you can argue for space is locked up, but I'm taking. I'm sorry, I'm taking Bell. I mean, every day of the week over Contreras at DH. Contreras yeah. has been really good don't get me wrong I-, I would like to emphasize that but one bell has had a far bigger
0: workload than when Contreras has had this year in a lot of yeah. ways and Contreras and Darno, in my opinion didn't deserve it the the roster shuffling i had was actually cj crone who also made it as a first baseman i had him as the backup dh to harper and that's and then i had bell as the third first baseman
1: yeah no i think th- i think that's completely fair again there's multiple options. Look look at, look at the numbers that someone like Krohn has been doing this year in comparison to Contreras, for example. Contreras has like 11 home runs, but he has like 22 RBIs. He's yeah. around there that same range. CJ Krohn has been one of the best home run and RBI uh, hitters in all baseball, especially in the NL this year. I mean, I don't think this is much of a debate. I think
0: it's called common sense. Unfortunately, we don't get that all the time when we're having yeah. these discussions, though. You know, it's it's weird. My, my issue with Snicker here is that, you know, I would have understood if he put a few more Braves on a pitching staff, you know, like I said, Strider, I've mentioned him a million times. I love him. But I, I really don't like what he did with Contreras and Darno as reserves. I didn't think either of them were deserving. You know, and, and Darno, it's like obviously Varsho, you can argue Darno's having a better year, and Varsho should have been there just, you know, for the D back's representative. But if you're gonna go with a team that doesn't need a representative, Will Smith's having a better year than Darno. So I thought that that was a homer call. Yeah, Contreras. When you know you could slide in other guys as a DH, I, I didn't agree with that. You know, Crone. You know, you were just making his argument, his case. He made the team, but as a first baseman, he's actually played slightly more as a DH. And I thought, you know, you could have had Bell and Crone in there as opposed to Crone and Contreras.
1: Yeah, no, uh, you're 100 right, man. And I think that's really all we need to say. You know, we're just over an hour into the pod. I feel like we could run a lot longer. Um, I am very antsy for this Braves series. I think that's an understatement, right? Hopefully when we discuss next in our pod, that'll be coming out on um, that should be coming out early Thursday. Hopefully we have some positivity and, um, excitement after a three games set against the Braves. But what I do know is that this is once again, the biggest matchup the Mets have this season, this starts 15 games that the Mets play the Braves here in the second half of the year. How are they going to fare? We will soon find out. But folks, I want to thank everyone so much that chimed in for the latest podcast presented by the Believe Network. This is Believe in Queens. Myself, Wardy NYM. Check me out on YouTube. Artist Mets platform here. Not directly affiliated with the Mets or SMY. Check me out on Twitter at Wardy NYM as well. Joe, where can everyone
0: find you, of course? Find me on the socials at Joe Seralo on Instagram, at the Joe TheJoeSorallo on Twitter and TikTok. And uh, don't forget on Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, catch my national radio show, Seralo Sports Talk on Sports Map Radio. Make sure you don't
1: miss out, guys. And, of course, if this is your first time listening to this latest Mets pod out here, make sure to subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, here on YouTube if you're on the Wardy NYM YouTube channel. And stay tuned, guys. We're getting really close. Looking like we're going to have our former New York Met as our co-host before you know it. So, stay tuned for that announcement. We're pumped up. We're feeling electric about it. I hope you guys are, too. But until then, have a great rest of your day, great rest of your week, folks. And we will see you all after the Braves series. And, Joe, let's go Mets, baby. LFGM.